Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 21, Jacqueline of Bavaria. Warning, this episode contains too many Johns. On his deathbed, William VI, the Count of Hanno, Holland and Zeeland, named his daughter Jacqueline of Bavaria as his heir. Given the financial, political and military might of these three territories, this elevated Jacqueline to an extremely powerful position within the Low Countries. And despite being only 15 years old, she seems to have been up to the task. Jacqueline was not afraid to take bold and risky moves to protect her own interests, often in defiance of those who would use her as their own political pawn. Unfortunately for her, however, being born a woman in a male-dominated society meant that Jacqueline's inheritance was instantly challenged by her uncle, John the Pitiless, Bishop-elect of Liège. Her marriage to the new Duke of Brabant, John IV, proved to be a disaster and did nothing to help her defend her domains from her avaricious uncle. Despite a spectacular attempt to return to the Low Countries at the head of an English army, when all was said and done, Jacqueline would be brought undone, not by her uncle, but by her cousin, the new Duke of Burgundy. He who, despite his arguably obvious non-goodness, would become known as Philip the Good. So what do we know about Jacqueline herself? It is very difficult to get an idea of the personality of medieval people, given the source material is often written by monks who probably had zero personality of their own. This is doubly true when it comes to women, who are often just mentioned because of their ability, or lack thereof, to pass on their genes. The chronicler Chastelaine said that Jacqueline was, quote, lovely, lively, and very strong of body, end quote. Whatever very strong of body means, she was apparently extremely good on horseback and could hunt with the best of them. The course her life would take and the decisions she made definitely suggest that she was ambitious and able to wield authority through the force of her personality. She was a direct product of that famous Cambrai double wedding that we have mentioned many times, born to William VI and the sister of John the Fearless, Margaret of Burgundy. Margaret was herself a formidable woman and had been extremely active alongside her husband in international diplomacy between Burgundy and France, so she had a lot of experience to impart upon Jacqueline. Like all people playing the game of familial feudalism, Margaret had her own interests, and Jacqueline's future was chief amongst them. She would remain her daughter's most consistent advocate and advisor. At 22 months old, Jacqueline was betrothed to the French king's fourth son, John of Valois. For those of you keeping score at home, we are not even five minutes in, and we've already hit four different Johns. We covered this in the last episode, and won't go into it too much here, but Already at not yet two years old, she was a piece on the political chessboard. This was not unusual, and it also wasn't just women who had their destiny so controlled in this social system. 
We've seen how marriage played such an important role in diplomacy and political agenda at the decision-making level of this society, and children of both genders had zero say in who they were expected to share a life with. After all, Jacqueline's father, William VI, who organized this engagement, was himself about 20 when he was married off to the 11-year-old Margaret by arrangement of his father, Albert, and his new father-in-law, Philip the Bold. But having powerful men wrangling over her destiny would continue to be a major theme throughout Jacqueline's life. Jacqueline and John, himself aged five, were sent off to Hanau to grow up with her parents in Le Quesnoy and to learn how to be the future Count and Countess of Hanau, Holland, and Zeeland. In 1411, their betrothal was agreed upon by the Pope, and in 1415, the two were wed in The Hague, in great pomp and ceremony. For William VI and his wife Margaret, this had been a great move, as Jacqueline was their only legitimate heir. Although there was precedent in Holland of a woman inheriting control of the territory, it had been met with resistance, so Jacqueline being married to a male from a strong family who could rule alongside her assured the security of William's legacy. Even though John was the fourth son, John of Valois, the fickle fortune of 15th century filial fatality struck all of his older brothers. Not even half a year after the wedding, he became the new Dauphin, the heir to the French throne. And now Jacqueline had a whole new path set out before her. She would be the queen consort of France and potentially mother to a future king. Needless to say, her parents were stoked. But alas, this was also not meant to be. In April 1417, her husband, the Dauphin John, which would be a good name for a hip-hop artist, by the way, went too far in copying his older brothers and also died. So now Jacqueline alone held the rights to succession in Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. This once again raised the issue of female inheritance amongst people in Holland, most notably in the urban centres. Now, with the marriage consigned to the annals, her uncle, the inimitable John of Bavaria, a.k.a. John the Pitiless, a.k.a. the ambitious bishop-elect of Liège, loudly contested her right to be heir. John was supported by Sigismund, the, for all intents and purposes, emperor. And he claimed that with no male heir to Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland, ownership of all three territories should revert back to the emperor to do with as he pleased. Jacqueline's father was so worried about this prospect that he sought personal reassurance from Sigismund that his daughter's succession would be recognized. This reassurance, however, was not forthcoming. The Holy Roman Empire was interested in the fortunes of Holland for multiple reasons at this point. At the beginning of the 15th century, Holland was on the rise, Immigration into the north of our swamp had accelerated the forces of urbanization, increasing the labor force and allowing its mercantile systems to grow in strength. Holland was located close to the Hanseatic networks, to Flanders, and as we went into a while back, was a hotspot for the growing herring industry and closely aligned shipbuilding industry. We know that in recent episodes, we've been neglectful of the everyday people who actually make up most of a nation's history. 
We've had to spend some serious time on the saucy and salacious and therefore more often told tales of infighting and inbreeding nobility. But we will soon get our boots back on the ground and amongst the commoners of the low country societies. However, suffice to say for now, in Holland, things were recovering from the devastation of the coronavirus, sorry, I mean the Black Plague, with Augusto. And its urban centres were starting to look like they might soon match those powerhouses of Ghent, Bruges and Ypres in Flanders. The growth of Burgundian power had not gone unnoticed by the powers that be in the Holy Roman Empire. Even though the Burgundian dukes were massively entrenched in French politics, most of the Low Countries, including Holland, were still technically enfiefed by virtue of the Emperor. Sigismund, who was playing at being the Emperor at this stage, he would officially become the Emperor in 1433, saw that with Jacqueline succeeding her father, she might marry close to the Burgundian clan and thus give them even greater control in Holland than they already had just through John the Fearless's alliance with William VI. So Sigismund supported John the Pitiless. Although John the Pitiless had relied on John the Fearless to secure his rule of Liège via the Battle of Ote, the harsh terms that John the Fearless had put on Liège afterwards had not sat well with the bishop-elect, so he pivoted towards leaning on the emperor instead of on his brother-in-law. John the Pitiless was a highly ambitious and, it turns out, pretty politically shrewd animal. William VI, for his part, continued trying to secure his daughter's rights to succession in Holland and Zeeland, aware of his younger brother's hungry, hungry eyes, Unfortunately, he never got to ensure this because about two months after Jacqueline's first husband, the Dauphin John, died, William came across an angry dog with an infectious bite and also died, as we covered last episode. In that episode, we saw how John the Fearless took advantage of this situation by arranging for Jacqueline to now marry his nephew, John IV, Duke of Brabant, in April 1418. While this was mostly for his own benefit, this marriage also would have helped Jacqueline with her claims in Holland and Zeeland because, unfortunately for her, she was a woman in a man's world. Her gender meant that she could not simply rely on her own sense of legitimacy, but had to have a powerful male who could muster an army at her side in order to validate it. But John the Pitiless was not about to just let this happen. Immediately after William's death, he sprung into action. He gave up his claim to the bishopric of Liège, which, given that he had never actually become a priest or taken holy orders, which explains why we've always called him the bishop-elect of Liège, we can probably assume that he had been planning to do this for a while. I guess now, he was more the bishop-neglect. Assured of Sigismund's backing, he went to Dordrecht and loudly proclaimed that he was Jacqueline's legal guardian. Supported by the town's leadership, he began appealing to influences in other big towns. By the end of the year, John had been enfiefed by Sigismund, with the titles to the three counties being contested. He then powered up another level by agreeing to marry Sigismund's niece and Anton of Brabant's widow, the Duchess of Luxembourg, Elizabeth of Görlitz. So now John the Pitiless was also the Duke of Luxembourg, and he was ready to take over Holland and Zeeland properly. As we have spoken about in previous episodes, 
During an earlier succession crisis in Holland, factions known as the Hooks and the Cods had sprung up and engaged in on-again, off-again conflicts with varying degrees of violence. By the 1400s, different towns in Holland showed different expressions of the factions. Town populations and political bodies likewise reflected those differences. Citizens of Amsterdam, for instance, aligned more with the Hook faction, whilst the international merchants there identified as Cods. Leiden had a Cod-leaning artisan faction, whilst the urban elite were Hooks, so although people across Holland were lining up behind the names Hook and Cod, those people would not have necessarily agreed upon any one ideal or single purpose had they been asked to do so at a pub. Even amongst the rulers of Holland, there were differences. Jacqueline's grandfather had leaned more towards the Cod faction and even had a Cod girlfriend who had been murdered by his Hook opponents. His son, William VI, however, with his wife Margaret beside him, had basically waged war against the Cods and spent his rule putting Hook partisans into administrative positions, rankling the sensitivities of Cod supporters in many towns. So now there were two men, both named John, both calling themselves the rightful Count of Holland and Zeeland, and these factions began to line up on a side behind each of them. John the Pitiless sought the support of the Cods, who held power in many of the bigger towns in Holland. The Cods took out their hatred of Jacqueline's father on her and her new husband, John IV. Jacqueline, in turn, looked to hook members of the nobility for support, which she largely received. But this, of course, was not enough. The prospect of a personal union between Holland and Brabant via the marriage between Jacqueline and John IV was unwelcome to the Cod faction, and it hardened their support for John the Pitiless across towns in Holland. The merchant and artisan classes in towns like Dordrecht, Rotterdam, and Amsterdam didn't want their commercial potential stifled by the already strong trading Brabantine towns like Antwerp and Brussels. John the Pitiless in Dordrecht used this discontent and continued rallying support and arms with which to further his claims. Jacqueline, now wed and based in Brussels, had the support of many of the states of Hanno and Brabant, but because of her physical absence in Holland, was unable to court Hollanders as successfully as her uncle was doing. John the Pitiless had taken a leaf out of the Burgundian playbook. He'd become an active patron of the arts, promoting a court culture of which Hollanders could be proud. Simultaneously, he promoted the glorification of Holland, but he also built a system of relationships with various power brokers across the territory. The marriage between Jacqueline and John IV was an extremely unhappy one, and John IV would not go down as a great or memorable ruler. He had a lethargic disposition, preferred doing things like hunting rather than governing. He was also saddled with debt, which he would never shake off. To his credit, I suppose, he did make initial attempts to help his wife in her efforts against her uncle and against the Cod faction in Holland. Hanno armies were mobilized, and the second round of the Hook and Cod Wars kicked off. John the Pitiless enjoyed initial victories in battle and succeeded taking Rotterdam in 1418 with the help of his Cod supporters. Apparently, when it came to battle, Jacqueline could actually be an inspiration on the field, whereas her new husband, John IV, was absolutely the opposite. Now take this with a massive grain of salt. 
but an English writer in the 1817 Gentleman's Magazine and Historical Chronicle, volume 87, described her excellently. And even if it's apocryphal, it's well worth the description, if only for his use of one of our favorite words. He said, Jacqueline, quote, took to the field at the head of her troops of Hanno and performed prodigies of valor, which were rendered ineffective by the pusillanimity of her husband, who spread dejection and dismay amongst the ranks of the Brabanters, end quote. We'll let you guess which one of those was our favorite words. We're possibly a little bit too pusillanimous to say it. To make matters worse, the marriage was controversial at the time due to, and get this, how closely related John IV and Jacqueline were. Yeah, it seems bizarre to us, and we do joke a lot about the inbreeding nature of these people, but claims and complaints could be made against cousins getting married. People could be unhappy about the prospect of such a close family unit. But the Pope in Italy did grant dispensation for this marriage, but upon request by Sigismund, he soon retracted it weeks later. This meant that the validity of the marriage depended on who you asked. John the Pitiless used this uncertainty to his advantage, now being able to tell people how much the Pope agreed with him that John the Fourth had no claim to Jacqueline's lands because their marriage wasn't real. At every level of her life, decisions were being made for Jacqueline by other people, all acting in their own interests. And now, she had ended up with her lands and titles being taken from her by a pitiless uncle, and to make matters worse, in order to defend those lands and titles, she had to rely on a disputable marriage to a man who was a useless, pusillanimous coward. So things were really heating up in the Low Countries. John the Fearless was too consumed in French politics to invest himself in Jacqueline's plight, so instead, this fell to his son Philip acting ruler of Flanders, who took charge of mediating the annoying civil war that had broken out. Before we look at how the Count of Charolais and the de facto ruler of Flanders, Philip, dealt with the issues bubbling in Holland and how they affected him, let's zoom out and have a look at some wider issues that he, as future Duke of Burgundy and Count of Flanders, had to consider. Philip and his father John the Fearless had largely managed to avoid the kind of revolts that had long stricken Flanders. Whereas John had grown up in the French court, had been the son of the French regent, and had taken his responsibilities in France as a priority, Philip did not. His concern from early on was more about Flanders than France, and as always the greatest point of interest for Flanders was maintaining relations with the English. At this point, England had become extremely powerful, and after the Battle of Agincourt, English Lancastrian forces had gained a sturdy foothold in France, essentially controlling the middle of the country. When it came to the ongoing issues in Holland between Jacqueline and John the Pitiless, Philip tried to maintain the status quo. He attempted to mediate to the benefit of his cousin Jacqueline and her husband John IV, and generally just tried to avoid warfare. However, John IV, as we've covered, was a damp squib of such great pusillanimity that he could not match John the Pitiless in their negotiations. He was pushed around, and in early 1419, the result was something called the Treaty of Valdrichum. Its conditions show just how little John IV fought for the claims and dignity of his wife. 
The treaty allowed her uncle to maintain possessions of the land he already controlled, which included the two great towns of Dordrecht and Rotterdam. She would have to share power with him over all of her territories for a period of five years and had to name him as her heir. John IV would then be put further into debt by agreeing to pay an indemnity to John the Pitiless of 100,000 gold coins. This greatly angered the states of Brabant, who themselves were divided between favouring a Burgundian alliance through John IV or an imperial one through John the Pitiless. Now they saw that they were going to have to front up the money for this fine. Jacqueline refused to acknowledge the terms of the Treaty of Valdricum. She had no say in its terms and had been represented by someone who did not have her interests at heart. She continued her resistance to the encroachments of her uncle with the support of the Hooks in Holland and about half of the states of Brabant. Then in September 1419, the Burgundian world changed completely. That fateful meeting on the bridge at Montereau between John the Feelers and the Dauphin Charles ended with the Duke of Burgundy's body being left strewn, slashed, smashed and stabbed to smithereens across the surface. His land and titles transferred to Philip. Philip's first steps as the new Duke of Burgundy would set him on a decisive path throughout the rest of his life. Instead of taking immediate violent vengeance on the Dauphin or the Armagnacs who had killed his father, Philip took stock of the situation. His chances of successfully taking his place as a prince of the blood in the French court would have looked slim indeed, given that the Dauphin's court in Bourges was by now basically running the show. Philip realised that his fortunes lay not in France, but instead to the north and east of Flanders. Philip took the identity of Burgundian dukes and pivoted it from being one of loyal French princes to becoming one inextricably linked with the Low Countries. So, whereas his father had steadfastly held his French princeness in check when it came to allowing for an Anglo-Flemish trade agreement, Philip actively sought an alliance with the English, and then also one with Queen Isabeau, who had seen her power amongst the Armagnacs fall. This led to something called the Treaty of Troyes. Troyes? Troyes? Troyes. We're going to go with Troyes. Signed in May 1420, in which she named the English king, Henry V, who had so successfully invaded five years earlier, as the regent of the mad King Charles VI, and also heir to the French crown. For all intents and purposes, France was now divided in three. The Dauphin Charles ruled the southeast, Henry V, the northern half from west to east, except for the Burgundian territories, which were ruled by Philip himself. It would be so interesting to know what Philip's grandfather, namesake, and loyal French prince, Philip the Bold, would have thought of this move. The younger Philip had handed much of France, including its capital city, over to their greatest enemy. However, he was also reaping the rewards in the Low Countries for what the older Philip had started to sow all those years ago. And those rewards would only increase. And we're glad, we're glad that he's getting increasing rewards. As for us, here's an ad break.
Welcome back. Things from this point continued to get worse for Jacqueline. In April 1420, John the Pitiless backed John IV of Brabant into another diplomatic corner and had him sign the Treaty of St. Martin's Dyke, in which he mortgaged Holland and Zeeland to John the Pitiless for 12 years. John IV also left the Hook faction and took up a role with the Cods, abandoning his wife. This was extremely unpopular amongst many people, including the states of Brabant, who now saw that their duke did not have a backbone, and they began to make moves that would limit his power before he could cause the duchy irrevocable damage. Jacqueline was absolutely furious with her husband. Confined to the Brussels court, and if anyone's ever been stuck in Brussels, you know how bad that would be, she was now married to a man who was actively working against her. This betrayal was just the latest in a long list of grievances that Jacqueline held against her husband. Earlier in that month, in a move indicative of a psychologically and emotionally abusive relationship, John IV kicked some of Jacqueline's ladies-in-waiting out of the dining hall, and according to his secretary, Edmond de Dinta, put limits on the amount of soup she was allowed to eat and wine that she was allowed to drink. It is clear that the marriage was unhappy on both sides, and that beyond the political betrayal of the St. Martin's Dyke Treaty, they just also had a really terrible relationship with each other. Jacqueline called her mum from Hanno, who came to Brussels to try and mediate the situation. Margaret was still mostly concerned with the maintenance of her daughter's position of power, so when a conciliatory response was not forthcoming from John IV, Jacqueline and Margaret packed up her stuff and bailed on April the 11th, 1420. She left Brussels and went home to Hanoi to continue her fight for Holland against her uncle. Jacqueline now showed her own adeptness at identifying political weaknesses and other points that she might exploit to aid her cause. She did this by leaning on the revoked validation of her marriage by the Pope, leaving her husband and casting off the personal union with Brabant. She now had to consider where to look next for support and she cast her gaze towards England. Jacqueline saw how their interests on their continent could be aligned with her own in the Low Countries, and she began a correspondence with the English king. Across the major Low Countries, things were looking incredibly unstable. The states of Brabant had learned that their duke was incompetent and were coming down hard upon him, and Holland was divided by civil war. Allegiances to Jacqueline or John the Pitiless split across towns and regions, from June to August of 1420, Leiden was put to siege by John the Pitiless's forces, and when it fell to him, Jacqueline had lost another important town to her cause. When she entered into communication with the English king, this level of instability was turned up to 11. The prospect of England increasing its holdings in the continent was not a happy one for any of the other major players involved. Although he was allied with the English, Philip the Good did not want to be flanked on both sides by them, and he did his best to reconcile John IV and Jacqueline, but this was to no avail. Things then came to a head on March the 6th, 1421, when Jacqueline took drastic action, and she left for England. Her correspondence with Henry V had paid off, as he gave her full support while she was there. Jacqueline still badly needed a husband with an army to defend her holdings. John IV had proved absolutely useless, and so now Jacqueline turned 180 degrees and agreed with her enemy, her uncle, and the Pope 
that her marriage to him was not valid. The magnitude of this act and the importance of what political consequences arose with an unmarried Jacqueline can be seen in the increased frantic level of communication that started to happen between Philip and a ton of other people. In England, in Brabant, and Holland, letters just came and went. Now, he had allied with the English to give them power in France, but he had no interest in them taking control of territories north of him, in Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. If Jacqueline did something like elope with a powerful English prince, this is exactly what could happen. Speaking of elope, by the way, that brings us to this week's Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. The word elope derives from the Dutch word ontlopen, which means to run away. So Jacqueline had ontloped the hell out of there and provided us with a tidy little Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. Jacqueline was welcomed into the English court with honour and dignity by Henry V, who was back in England for a short respite between battling it out in France. Henry was no fool, and he had identified in Jacqueline the exact opportunity about which Philip was so concerned. He quickly arranged for her to marry his brother, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. Henry then returned to France, where he died suddenly in August, leaving an infant son and inevitable power struggle behind him. Jacqueline and Humphrey were married in October, but once again, the Pope in Rome put on his big hat and his red shoes, waved his magic wand around and said, sorry, not married. Although the Great Western Schism of the Church had finally ended in 1414 and the Avignon Papacy was no longer, Benedict XIII was still alive. He was hanging out in Spain and he was still calling himself the Pope, and he agreed to give the new couple the necessary go-ahead. These were strange times indeed. Suffice it to say, though, that this was not a rock-solid dispensation, and this third marriage of Jacqueline's was even more disputed than her second had been, and that had been incredibly disputed. Nevertheless, Humphrey of Gloucester began calling himself Count of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland, which now, alongside John IV and John the Pitiless, made three different blokes at that time claiming those titles all of them, via guardianship of their actual owner, Jacqueline. In November 1421, while Jacqueline was in England, a huge portion of the land that she was busy trying to reclaim fell victim to what, to this day, is known as the 20th worst flood in history. Like, not in the Netherlands or Europe, in the world. The St. Elizabeth Flood affected Flanders and Zeeland, as well as parts of Friesland and Denmark, but the greatest devastation was in Holland. The polders around Dordrecht went under, as a great storm came in from the northwest, followed by a huge storm surge. The dikes breached, and entire villages, alongside at least 2,000 and possibly up to 10,000 people, were swept away. Lands that were submerged in the flood have never been recovered, remaining underwater into modern times. It was this flood which created one of the most beautiful landscapes in the Netherlands, the wetlands, known as the Beesbos. From that point on, Hollanders were busy dealing with the devastation of inundation on top of the civil war that they already had to manage. This busyness and the hecticness and the devastation of the flood can all be seen in an amazing painting that was done about 70 years later, and that's going to be up on our website in the show notes. Across 1420-21, to 21, an opportunity fell into Philip the Good's lap 
that would increase his holdings in the Low Countries. It came in the form of a little territory called Namur, which borders Liège, Hanau, and Brabant. Its count, John III, who in our story is now the, yes, fifth John? Fifth? I've lost count. He was childless and broke. He came to Philip with an offer to sell the inheritance of Namur to him for 132,000 golden crowns, a pretty huge amount. It is unclear how great Philip's ideas of expansion were at this early stage in his rule, but the acquisition of Namur, which would pass to him whenever John III died, would increase his holdings and give him a valuably strategic position on the border with Brabant and Hanau. Philip already had a lot of influence in Brabant. Burgundian policy for years, as we well know, had been to keep as many members of the estates of Brabant in their pocket as possible. The Brabant estates were divided, but also moving towards taking full control of the government in Brussels. With the rebellious flight of Jacqueline, Philip saw the opportunity to curry his favour amongst them as he considered making another major political move. Philip had been in frequent contact with John the Pitiless over the years, and in 1424, put off by Jacqueline's English dalliance, swayed him away from the imperial influence of old Sigismund and onto his side. In April, John the Pitiless, and also childless, named Philip the Good as the heir to his possessions in Holland and Zeeland. This was huge for Philip, because now his name was also officially on the list of people with a claim on these territories. And now he would just have to get past two people, and he would have jumped to the front of the queue. It was also huge for Jacqueline, because she had now lost all support of her very powerful and very ambitious Burgundian cousin. Rumours began circulating around July 1424 that Humphrey and Jacqueline were assembling a great invasion force that would soon be on its way to ravage the region and that she was also pregnant with his child. Although the pregnancy ended in a stillbirth, the invasion did happen when Jacqueline and her husband landed at Calais at the head of a force in mid-October. Their intention was to take over Hanno, which in Jacqueline's absence was being ruled by the other man who claimed to be her husband, John IV of Brabant, Philip played it cool, and he did not send an army against them at first. By the end of December, Hanno was back in Jacqueline's hands, although she had lost a lot of support there, as well as in Brabant and Holland, for the fact that she had allowed an English army into the Low Countries. It was at this point that Philip reverted to a military approach and began mobilising troops for an assault on Hanno. It has been argued that he deliberately delayed action to allow John IV's weaknesses to be fully exposed, and thus enable Philip to take as much control of Hanno for himself as he could. It was at this point, however, that fortune once again shined upon the Duke of Burgundy, when John the Pitiless, entrenched in Holland as its effective ruler, died. As to how this happened, well... The story goes that he had come into a disagreement with the husband of one of Jacqueline's bastard sisters, a guy called Jan van Fleet. Van Fleet had decided to take action and had smeared a slow-acting poison onto the pages of the prayer book used by John the Pitiless. Apparently this conspiracy was discovered. Van Fleet was captured and tortured, whereupon his confession brought the plot to light, because we all know that confession under torture is ridgy-didge and he promptly was beheaded. Unfortunately for John the Pitiless, however, more was actually the pity 
as the poison was unstoppable and caused him six months of pain before he took to shaking off his mortal coil. That's what I call revenge from beyond the grave. Spooky. Philip, who was in Burgundy at the time, and having attained the succession rights to John the Pitiless's holdings, now became the nominal head of the Cod faction in Holland. He began the process of Burgundianization in Holland and Zeeland, moving people loyal to him into places of administrative power and building up a clientele of supporters. He compelled John IV of Brabant, who was still pretending to be count, to accept him as partner in administration of these counties, and he joined his troops with the Brabantine forces fighting for the weak John IV. In March 1425, they crossed into Hanno and put the town of Bran le comte under siege. After a few days, the English garrison there surrendered. The Duke of Burgundy then offered Humphrey of Gloucester a chance to end the war before it went even further by challenging him to hand-to-hand combat. This was a pretty bold move. I mean, these days, people are freaked out about hand-to-hand contact, let alone combat. But it did pay off. Humphrey accepted the challenge, and a great fervor surrounding it began to spread across Europe. Unfortunately, though, before this mano a mano could happen, Humphrey packed up his stuff, grabbed one of Jacqueline's ladies-in-waiting, a woman called Eleanor Cobham, with whom he had fallen in love, apparently, and buggered off back to England. Jacqueline was left floundering in the town of Mons, once more betrayed by the fact that she always needed to rely on other people, and those other people always looked after their own interests first. Philip then proceeded with a firm but diplomatic approach towards Jacqueline, There was unrest against her within the walls of Mons, and many of the power brokers there had been indignant at the involvement of the English, and they were keen on Philip now. At the same time, Philip made John IV of Brabant give up total control of Holland and Hanno, making John's total loss of power now complete. Jacqueline was still convinced that Humphrey would return, but when her appeals to him were met with silence, and with the pressure bearing down on her from Inside and outside of Mons, in the middle of 1425, she surrendered to her cousin. She was taken to Ghent, where Philip had her put under house arrest. Philip's domain had now expanded beyond the Burgundian lands, beyond Flanders and Artois, and into Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. And he was now also the puppet master of Brabant. But he wasn't done yet. And neither, as it happens was Jacqueline. In September 1425, she was due to be moved from Ghent to Lille, but instead, she contrived to dress herself as a man, and in the early and dark hours of the morning, passed furtively through the streets of Ghent, got outside the city gates to where two of her knights were waiting for her, and they helped her escape successfully to Antwerp. From there, she got on horseback and rode as quickly as possible to Gouda. Philip was not going to take her land from her without a fight. In Gouda, in Holland, she actually found active support. Sure, many people had backed John the Pitiless, but he was now dead, and those people did not necessarily wish to then see the expansion of Burgundian power into Holland. So in Jacqueline, many now saw a rallying symbol of independence against that happening. She could raise an army, and she did. And she went to war once more. Philip went into 
overdrive when Jacqueline escaped. He was not sure where she had gone and feared another English intervention on her behalf. Soon he was raising his banners, receiving pledges of allegiance from towns in Holland that were loyal to him and sending back garrisons, as well as some of his best military captains to prepare for the defense of Holland. He sent spies everywhere, trying to learn as much as he could about where Jacqueline was and what she was planning. And before long, he was in Leiden himself, leading the campaign. On the 22nd of October, a contingent of militia from Amsterdam, Harlem and Leiden was sent to Gouda, where she was headquartered. She and her forces jumped them near Alphen in South Holland and handed Philip's forces a heavy defeat. He now had to personally go and rally the towns of Holland who were with him, fearful of the image of Hollandic liberty that Jacqueline was starting to represent. He did a tour of Holland to try to counter this in the typical Burgundian style of just laying it on really thick. Jacqueline's marital status at this point was still up for debate. Philip of Burgundy had sent to the Pope for a final ruling on the matter, but at this stage, Humphrey could still make a somewhat legitimate claim on Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. According to a letter from Philip himself, in January 1426, a combined English and Hollandic force of about 1,500 men turned up near Zierikzee in Zeeland, intent on making landfall and taking the fight to the Duke of Burgundy. Philip tells how he quickly left from Leyde to Rotterdam, from whence he and his forces, made up mainly of men from The Hague, Dordrecht, and Delft, got on ships and set off to find the enemy and make battle at sea. They encountered a force of about 300, killing or capturing them, and then found the main body already disembarked at a place called Brouwer's Harfer. Philip put a blockade on them. As the conditions were too windy for him to make landfall himself, and a stalemate ensued for a few days. One anonymous chronicler referred to by Richard Vaughan notes how the people of the nearby Zierikzee took the opportunity to make money, selling provisions to both sides as they stayed glaring at each other across the harbour. When conditions were right, Philip had his forces disembark and prepare to attack. Before they could, however, the enemy attacked them. He reckoned that he had about 4,000 troops, of which a third was still on their ships. The English side, accompanied by about 3,000 Zeelanders and some Hollandic nobility, was said to have been about the same in total. Although the English had the advantage of all being on the land, the Burgundian forces included famed gunners from Dordrecht, who were able to set up and push the assault back. Crossbow and longbow fire was exchanged before a heavy cavalry which included Philip himself, was able to make a dent in the English line. Soon the forces sent by Humphrey were being pushed back along the dikes and into the sea, where many of them drowned. The result was a resounding Burgundian victory, in which few of the vanquished escaped. From that point on, Jacqueline would find no further support from England. She would now need to rely on her own people. Most in Zeeland threw their support behind Philip now, but many towns in Holland still saw him as a foreign threat, and so either stayed or became loyal to Jacqueline. Indeed, in some places, like the towns of Amersfoort and Alkmaar, and also the neighbouring bishopric of Utrecht, even switched sides to hers at this juncture. So despite Philip's resounding victory against the English in Zeeland, the war carried on. In April 1426, Jacqueline's forces once again met with Philip's in Alphen and once again handed them a heavy defeat. 
She then laid siege to Harlem. Philip responded by targeting the location where the majority of her fleet was moored, by the island town of Seferberger. He put the town to siege in the latter half of 1426 and patiently waited for it to fall. Jacqueline, meanwhile, made a last-ditch plea in a letter to powers that be in England for assistance. This formidable woman, who refused to give up, still had to figuratively prostrate herself before those on the English Privy Council, which included her estranged husband, Humphrey. Quote, Most noble, very reverend fathers in God, my most honourable lords and special friends, concerning my desolate self, be pleased to know that I am in reasonable health, but, on the other hand, in great anxiety, fear, danger, and grief. It sounds like much of the world today. She tells them that she is sending this letter to, quote, refresh your most noble memories and to bring to your notice the monstrous outrages, oppressions, and injuries which my cousin of Burgundy has perpetrated against me in the last two years in pursuing me from one of my countries to another in order to disinherit me and in cruelly spilling the blood of my poor but loyal subjects, end quote. Her final paragraph of the letter, however, reaffirms the difficulties of her position, not least of which was because of the one condition that had held her back her entire life, that she was a woman born into a world ruled exclusively by men. Quote, I cannot endure without your help and my husband's, so I, a poor disconsolate woman, entreat you most humbly that it please you to consider this matter sympathetically, end quote. But the English Privy Council, ruling in regency of an infant, was not to be swayed. This was also largely due to the work of Philip. The man in charge of the English holdings in France, guess what his name was? John, the Duke of Bedford, maybe the sixth or seventh one we've had. He was the brother of Humphrey, but he also had a close relationship with Philip. He knew how vital the Burgundian English alliance was to England's position in France, He and Philip had worked together for years in dissuading Humphrey from helping Jacqueline, and this had finally paid off. By the middle of 1427, Philip did not have to worry about English intervention anymore, although rumours of such would still occasionally persist. Over four months, Philip employed continual heavy bombardment of Seferberger. The situation for those living in the town grew steadily worse and worse each day. Finally, the hungry citizenry overpowered Jacqueline's garrison there and opened the gates to the Duke of Burgundy. So Philip, having succeeded in crippling Jacqueline, now needed to finish the job. With the loss of most of her ships, her ability to supply herself and her army was severely hampered. But Philip knew that the towns of Holland had plenty of waterways by which she could still move goods. He needed to stop this effectively and also to make clear to those standing against him in Holland that he was not somebody to be defied. Philip went to Amsterdam around Easter of 1427 and there commanded the town to build a 20-metre-long defensive boulevard along the sea face, protected by walls reaching about 5 metres high and thick enough to withstand cannon fire. Having done this, he then had them construct a defensive barge blockade, which could be used to prevent goods being shipped to Utrecht or to Amersfoort. This was an extremely unique piece of military hardware, and also just a very loud statement to the people of Holland. He was here, he had arrived, and he was not going anywhere. 
which was a real shame for Jacqueline, especially when in April of 1427, her, depending who you asked, husband, John IV of Brabant, died. Now, she was left, the only remaining contestant from the original kerfuffle, and the titles to Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland all reverted to her. John IV's younger brother, Philip of St. Paul, became the new Duke of Brabant and Limburg. Philip did not care one jot. Even though his administration of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland had been technically made void by John IV's death, his goals and ambitions were clear, and he would not be swayed by technicalities. By May 1427, Philip was confident enough to declare the war over, but he obviously did not tell Jacqueline. Although she had been massively curtailed, she was not defeated. She never lost her most ardent supporters, chiefly in Chauda, and she had gained the support of the Prince Bishop and the people of Utrecht, whose own civil war had now merged with that of Holland. Her remaining fleet, led by the capable Willem van Brederode, still had uncontested control of the Zuiderzee. Although she was not going to lose the war, it was clear that without any further help from the English, she wasn't going to win it either. In late 1427, Philip arrived in North Holland to begin a winter campaign that would see mixed results. His navy defeated and captured Van Brederode and made gains towards Utrecht to try and replace the Jacqueline-allied Prince Bishop there. Philip's objectives met opposition amongst the people of Utrecht, and beyond establishing positions near Narda and Hardewijk, he was unsuccessful in pushing further than Amersfoort. By the end of January, he was forced to withdraw altogether. In early 1428, however, Jacqueline's hopes were dealt a mortal blow. Remembering that her marital status was still entirely unclear, and depending on who you asked, she was either the widow of John IV or the wife of Humphrey of Gloucester, the Pope had been asked for a final decision, and he now declared her marriage to Gloucester to have been invalid, null and void. Her risky move to make a personal union with an English prince had finally failed completely. In spring, Philip laid siege to her base of Chauda, and by July, Jacqueline recognised that the writing was on the wall. On the 3rd of that month, she formally surrendered to Philip via the Treaty of Delft. By the terms of this agreement, she retained her titles, but effectively ceded the administrative rule of her lands to Philip. Jacqueline, it would seem, was defeated. In 1429, an agreement at Valenciennes confirmed that she would receive an annual sum of £24,000, but had to give up all administrative rights in Holland, officially making Philip the regent and the heir of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. Also in that year, John III of Namur died, and so due to their earlier agreement, Philip the Good also inherited that territory. His domains expanded again in 1430 when Philip of St. Paul, the Duke of Brabant, also died, having also left Philip as his heir. Philip, though, in pragmatic fashion, realised that the difficulties of running a large centralised state, combined with Holland's vulnerability to civil divisions and conflict, would cause him problems. Instead of ruling Holland directly, he just continued to put Burgundian loyalists into different positions and then in 1430 sold an eight-year lease of the rule of Holland to the Lords of Borselen, including Frank van Borseler, who had early been appointed General and Grand Captain of Zeeland. And this would seem to be the end. Jacqueline was broke and had been stripped of all power, 
Philip had won, right? Well, Philip obviously didn't think so. He quickly grew threatened by the sudden growth in power of Frank von Borsler and had him imprisoned. Then he forced Jacqueline to come to The Hague and voluntarily abdicate all of her titles, in so doing recognizing Philip as the official and only Count of Hanno, Holland, and Zeeland. Once she had done this, Frank von Borsler was released. A legend soon grew up that Jacqueline had actually earlier secretly married von Borsler, and this is what had prompted Philip to make these moves, but this is highly speculative. Curiously though, these two actually did get married later on, and this time it was with Philip's blessing in 1434. They retired to live on meager lands that Philip had left to Jacqueline in Zeeland. No scholar since has been able to rule out that the marriage was one of love, although Richard Vaughan makes the statement that it was not long before they were fighting between each other. Whatever the truth in this regard, Jacqueline would not long enjoy her fourth marriage and the quiet life as the wife of a rich nobleman, because in 1436, at the age of 35, she died of tuberculosis, and that, somewhat tragically, was to be the lot of Jacqueline of Bavaria. The sources on Jacqueline's personality are scarce, and due to the political turmoil in which she found herself embroiled, undoubtedly tainted by bias. She was said to have been fiery, passionate, and inspirational, but it is really impossible to know for sure. Furthermore, her life and character have been recycled through Dutch history in different forms and for different purposes. What we found interesting is how her life exhibited the stark differences in challenges faced by males and females born into ruling positions. Had she been a man, we very well might have been talking about the peaceful reign of Jack I of Holland. Given her gender though, and because of the culture of feudal jostling for power, she was used her entire life as a political pawn by her father, her uncles, the King of England, and her cousin. She ended up being married four times, perhaps once happily. She raised an army and invaded the Low Countries from England, which not many people can tick off their bucket list. Whatever she was really like as a person, what cannot be said of Jacqueline is that she did not give struggle for what she believed in, because she did, and it took everything that Philip the Good had to finally defeat her. And he was the one person that you'd have to say came out as the victor in all of this. This grandson of Philip the Bold, he who all those episodes ago we mentioned would come out ruling basically the entirety of the Low Countries. Philip the Good was just about there, and it is there that we are going to leave him for now, in charge of Burgundy, Flanders, Rettel, Nevers, Artois, Brabant and Limburg, Holland, Zeeland, Hanno and Namur. Before we sign off today, a massive thank you to everyone for listening and for supporting us. In these uncertain times of viral infections forcing countries to close their borders and for travel plans to be cancelled and offices to close down, we are sure that you, much like everybody else, are probably wondering, what am I going to do while stuck in a home for a few weeks? And the answer is, you're going to listen to podcasts and you're going to tell your friends to listen to podcasts and especially History of the Netherlands. That's right, if we're all quarantined, we'll keep making them if you keep listening. 
Please help us out by leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. It helps keep our little independent show at the pointy end of the history charts there and in front of the eyes of many people. If you haven't done it yet, please do. We will send some stickers to the first five people to send a screenshot of their five-star review to us on Twitter, at HistoryOfNL. Don't worry, we will wash our hands thoroughly before we touch the stickers and put them in the envelope to you. Also, remember, you can always throw some money in the jar at patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. That's what old mate Mike Hotdog Houtema did. He's generously given us five bucks an episode, so he gets to hear his name five times on international broadcast. Houtdog, 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 Houtdog. Also, Ninka van Ghent, Genners, loved our keeping her company on train rides so much that she has upped her pledge. Therefore, we would like to up our love for her. Targenners, appreciate it. As for us, we'll be back next episode. Keep on rolling. Totso. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.